This morning when I was coming into the sanctuary, there's, you might see this happen sometime, there's three or four little girls that come running up to me, they're probably three or four years old, and they come running up, Pastor, it's our, and it's our weekly greeting, they might be in here, they might be out with everybody, they're asking me this morning, what are you going to, what are you going to talk on? What are you going to talk on? And I said, I'm going to talk on the man of lawlessness. (laughs) And you should have seen their faces. They looked at me and and I said, that is a man who's coming and he's going to be very sinful and he's going to deceive people and Jesus is going to come back and kill him. And they said, what? Are you kind of like that, if I was to say, I mean, could you imagine a scene where a man rose to totalitarian authority over the entire world, proclaimed himself as the true God above all gods and made specific plans to set himself up to be worshipped in a temple that had the globe's attention and was dedicated to the worship of God. Could you imagine a scene like that? Would you be like those little three, four-year-old girls? What? Well, Paul actually says here in this text we should expect it. It is the sign, actually, that the day of God's final judgment has arrived. And by the way, if you can't imagine a scene like that at all, do you understand that It has already happened before, several times. It occurred in 168 BC when Antiochus IV, the one known as Epiphanes, conquered Jerusalem and set an image of Zeus up in the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple, desecrating the altar by offering pigs on it and ending the sacrificial system of the Jews. And he was eventually overcome, though, by a Jewish revolt. It happened. In AD 40, just before the letter to the Thessalonians that we're studying was written, one commentator noted the emperor Caligula, or also known as Gaius, had plans to turn the Jerusalem sanctuary into a place of worship dedicated to himself as a god, and he gave instruction for his statue to be set up in that sacred site. He was assassinated before his plans came to fruition, but all of the Jews of the day knew of those plans. In AD 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey had captured the city of Jerusalem, entered the Holy of Holies in the temple. Josephus actually called him by the term the lawless one. In AD 70, the Roman general Titus destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and elevated the Roman insignia above the ruins as if Caesar were a god above the god of the Jews. And these are just the instances that have taken place up through the first century. There are actually many more that we have seen in history. What Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about the man of lawlessness. The people in the city of Thessalonica, they could readily understand this kind of scenario. They had heard about it. They had seen this kind of thing before. So when Paul says this is to come, 
This is something that they didn't doubt because they had seen it before. They'd heard of it before. For us to deny that one man could rise to global influence through political and religious influence, calling himself God and ruling the world, for us to deny that, that that could be a reality, is actually to close our eyes to world history. It's actually to close our eyes to current trends. And it's actually to close our eyes and misread the biblical picture of what actually is still to come in a more ultimate way. The passage that we're studying suggests that this very scenario is going to happen. And it will be a sign that the day of God's judgment has actually arrived. But why? What's going on in this chapter, in the second chapter of Thessalonians, that would lead Paul to go down this road of talking about details like this that seems so bizarre and perhaps outside of our own experience. And I would suggest to you, I've been chronicling a number of quotations and things that are going on even in our own world. And I've been studying a number of people who in just in the last hundred years have made similar claims. If you can't see these things, I, I wonder how closely you're paying attention to them. Why does Paul have to go into this? Well, we know from what we have studied in this letter and the previous letter that this church was under intense persecution. They were being opposed at every turn by virtually everyone in their society. There was governmental opposition, there was cultural rejection, there was probably even some martyrdom. And Paul had actually warned them previously, you're going to suffer. And now it was happening And he had even taught them that the suffering that you're going through, one day the Lord himself is going to come back and he will avenge your suffering. Paul had taught them many, many times. I mean, we see it in verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you, and the verb tense, I was constantly, constantly telling you these things? He'd been teaching them about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, even suggesting that it was a key point for them to concentrate on so that they would not stop loving each other or growing in the things of the Lord. But now someone has come into this church and has caused them to doubt what Paul has taught them, suggesting that their current events, their current pressures and persecution are the signs that they are now in the final days of God's wrath. And that was very unsettling to them. You remember, he says in verse 2, do not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul's writing to settle them down They've gotten themselves into this kind of fever pitch about what's going on in their current events in light of the day of the Lord or the coming of Christ, which seems to be a problem in every generation of Christians. To examine what's going on around us and get all worked up into some kind of feverish pitch and sometimes even try to assign that this event is that event to come. 
or we are now living in the time of God's wrath. You might even hear people today suggest that very thing, that we are in the days of tribulation, of God's wrath. Well, Paul is writing the Thessalonians to say, be careful with that. Let me give you some details. And the reason why he gives them these details is to settle them down. I mean, think about this. You know this to be true. If you knew what was going to happen in the future, would it impact you right now? If you knew some of the details coming and you were looking at what's going on around you, would, it, would you not be able to tell the difference and settle down? That's the idea. Don't misinterpret current events in light of what we know the Lord has told us regarding the return of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2 helps us to do this. It helps us to settle down and interpret current events in light of the coming of Christ. So how does this chapter do this? Well, we're using this chapter and seeing this chapter to see how we are to understand the things to come and not misinterpret what's going on around us now. How do we do that? Well, we're looking at four different points of clarification. Paul is looking to clarify things for them. And so we need to have some points of clarification. And the very first thing to do is you have to clarify the events of Jesus coming. There's four he's going to give us. You clarify the events of Jesus coming. Then you have to clarify the evidence that reveals the day of the Lord. What's going to show us that we're actually in the day of the Lord? Then we need to clarify how our salvation actually relates to the day of the Lord. Because we're saved, how do we relate to the day of the Lord? And last, we have to then clarify our response. If we know the events related to Christ's return, and we're aware of the evidence that would show us the day of the Lord and we understand how our salvation fits with all of that, then that governs our response. That's really the roadmap that we're walking through in 2 Thessalonians 2. But first, we have to clarify in our minds the events of Jesus coming and how they relate to one another. And Paul had been teaching them about this constantly. They knew about these events that were coming. He alludes to them in these verses in this chapter, but he doesn't give us all the details. I mean, it's as if we're reading in on something they knew more information about, and you're saying, come on, Paul, we want more detail here. Do you ever find yourself saying that when you're reading the Bible? We need more detail. We don't know everything that he taught them. Just give us more here. But we have glimpses into it and we can put it together. From the information Paul does, we, we can see something about the coming of the Lord and these events and how they relate to one another. The coming of Jesus, it's a, it's a series of events to come. It's, it's kind of like what we're going to see in the upcoming coronation of King Charles III. I know all of you are on the edge of your seat waiting for that to happen in a couple of weeks. You won't tell anybody, but you're probably still going to watch it. I know. I'm going to watch it. It's history in the making. It's a thousand years of history being played out. I mean, that's significant. People watch it, all right? But the coronation of the king is not just one event where they place the crown on the head. The coronation is a whole series of events and they have to come in a particular order. There's the recognition and the oath that the king will give. Then there is the anointing on the king. Then there's the investing of the jewels on the king. Then the crowning where they place the crown on his head. And even after that, the enthronement. There's a series of events. The coming of the Lord is like that. 
The coming of the Lord is not just his return to the earth. There's a series of events. Jesus' coming is alluded to and spoken of in verse 1. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's that general term, like coronation. That's the general term, coming, parousia, that encompasses all the events about Christ's return. And then there's a number of different events that are alluded to in this passage that fit within the coming. Like the gathering. The gathering. The coming of our Lord and our gathering together to him. That's a part of the coming. It's described more fully in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 to 18 where the dead in Christ are raised and those in Christ still living are caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds to be with him and likely presented to the Father in completion. The gathering then begins what is called technically then the day of the Lord, which is alluded to in verse 2 when someone, a false teacher, had said the day of the Lord has already begun. Well, what is the day of the Lord? Well, it's another aspect of the coming of Christ that's launched by the gathering But it's an Old Testament idea of God bringing judgment to the unbelieving on the earth, disciplining, restoring his people, Israel, and it will culminate in a final event that's alluded to in verse 8, which is called the appearing. The day of the Lord will be finalized by the appearing of the Lord when he actually returns to the earth, slays the man of lawlessness, whom we'll talk about today, and actually brings retribution to the enemies of God. It's what he alluded to in chapter 1 of when he actually appears and comes back to the earth. So the coming of Christ begins with the gathering of of those who are in Christ into the clouds to be with the Lord. It launches the day of the Lord, which is the outpouring of God's wrath on the earth, and it's finalized by the appearing of Christ when he returns. You know the issue that's happening in Thessalonica. We see it has to do with a question about the coming of our Lord, namely the aspect of his coming regarding the gathering together. And how does that fit with a false teacher who said, now you're in the day of the Lord now. So the issue obviously had to do with the relationship between the gathering together of the Lord and the day of the Lord. If the day of the Lord was here, then what happened to the gathering? Now, the the reality is if Paul had taught that the gathering together to be with the Lord would come after, at the end of the time of God's wrath, they wouldn't be unsettled by that. They would be excited because what's next then? If this is the day of the Lord, what's next? The Lord returns. That would not be unsettling. That would be exciting. But if Paul had actually taught that the gathering together to the Lord would come before the day of the Lord before the time of God's wrath, then this would be most unsettling because they weren't gathered. Neither was Paul. So what in the world is going on if this is the day of the Lord? Everything you you taught back in 1 Thessalonians, it hasn't happened, Paul. And if this is the day of the Lord, then what, what does that say about us? What does that say about us in our spiritual condition? If they were in the day of the Lord, this would have been terrible news. But if you keep the events of the Lord in order, clear in your mind, the gathering, the wrath, the appearing, the end, then you don't misinterpret what's going on around you. 
Paul clarifies these events. Now, because this issue had to do with some discrepancy between what he taught about the gathering and the day of the Lord, Paul says, so, so you think the gathering isn't here? Well, let me tell you, let me give you some evidences that you would know that you're actually in the day of the Lord. How would you know that the current trials that Christians go through is or is not the actual outpouring of the final wrath of God? How would you know? That's what we deal with beginning in verse 3 and really going all the way through verse 12 in this chapter. How do we know? Well, there's a number of evidences that Paul will give us here, a number of ways he's going to describe the coming man of lawlessness who is right at the center of the day of the Lord. And Paul wants to make sure that we understand these things. So he's going to give us this morning two clear pieces of evidence that reveal the day of the Lord. Two clear pieces of evidence that reveal the day of the Lord. How are we going to know the day of the Lord? And why do you have to know that? You say some, some have suggested, well, I don't need to know any of that if the rapture takes place first. Because if the rapture takes place, I don't give a rip, right? I don't care what comes. I'm not there. Unless there are voices that sound authoritative telling you, no, you are now in it. This is the day of the Lord. And they use Bible verses to go along with it. And you start to wonder, so are we or are we not? Don't remove yourself from the dilemma here. It's the same dilemma for all of us. So how do we know? What are these two pieces of evidence? First, the apostasy comes. The apostasy comes first. I mean, that's particularly what he says in verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. What is it will not come? The day of the Lord will not come. Or the day of the Lord has not come now unless the apostasy comes first. Let no one deceive you. I'm not convinced that everybody in the church in Thessalonica was deceived. I think there were some, and it was a significant group of people who was creating such a stir, it was impacting much of the church. Let no one deceive you in any way. What does he mean by any way? Well, all of those ways that were described in verse 2, either by a spirit, that is some kind of spirit-inspired message, or a sermon, or we could say today even a book, a message, or even a letter as if it came through our own authority. In no way should you let anyone deceive you. Here is the clear evidence. You first look for the apostasy. That's clear. You say, well, why didn't he say the rapture? Wouldn't that have settled it? Well, Probably not, especially if the false teachers had said, well, the rapture has already come, and it's likely already come, not in some literal way, but a metaphorical way, a spiritual way, much like many people were saying in Paul's day that the resurrection would not be physical. Now they're saying the rapture would just be a spiritual experience. So that means you're in the day of the Lord. Well, if you're in the day of the Lord, how would you know that if the rapture was just something spiritual? Well, you've got to see, it, the apostasy comes first. That launches then us into that day of the Lord. It's the first thing to look for, the apostasy. 
What is apostasy? What does that mean? Well, in general, the word apostasy is a deliberate abandonment of something once believed. It is a rejection of a once-held allegiance. It's a departure from a once-held commitment. You're deliberately abandoning a belief system you once put your arms around. That's apostasy. It's someone who you saw come to faith in Christ. They prayed the sinner's prayer. They called on God to save them. They were baptized, declaring their faith in Jesus Christ. They became a part of the church and began to live among you. And now all of a sudden, they reject all of that and say, I don't believe in Christ. I don't believe in the gospel. I reject all of those things I've once held to. That's apostasy. It's typically a religious kind of term. It's a rejection of religious belief that you once held to. A general kind of apostasy has happened from the very beginning days of faith. The Jews who spied out the promised land and refused to enter, they apostatized. They rejected God's word and said, we will not follow him, we will not go. And they suffered God's judgment for it, didn't they? The entire book of Judges is a record of Israel's apostasy. It shows evidence of apostasy within Israel. They fell away. They received a severe response. They returned. And then what did they do? Fall away again. Judas apostatized from following Jesus when he sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, wept about it because he he knew what he did was wrong but didn't repent. He continued in his rejection and then took his own life. 2 Timothy 4.10 describes a man named Demas who having loved this present world has deserted me, Paul says. And when Paul says he deserted me, doesn't mean he just left me alone. He walked away everything from everything that I stand for. He loved the world. He apostatized. He walked away from Christ. Paul describes men like Hymenaeus and Philetus as men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. They have walked away from the truth. These are men like Hymenaeus and Alexander who Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that he had to hand over to Satan. They had apostatized. The writer of Hebrews was concerned that there be there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The concern is that people will turn away from the Lord. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, even in Hebrews 6, if you abandon Jesus, what do you have left to appease God? You have no one, you have nothing, you've left everything, that's apostasy. The Apostle John referred to these people in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. How do you know that? Because if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so it would be shown that they are not all of us. Apostates are those who were not true believers. Because they show that. They show they did not have true faith because they walked away after initially professing to believe. Apostasy has been an issue from the beginning. 
We've seen it here in our own congregation, haven't we? We've seen people walk away from the faith. We've seen people that we were just sure with the sincerity of which they embraced the gospel at one time and now the clarity of which they reject it, it's just bewildering to us. It's called apostasy. We've seen that from the beginning. But Paul is not here in 2 Thessalonians referring to a general kind of apostasy. There is a particular apostasy, he says, that defines the coming day of the Lord. In fact, he refers to it as the apostasy. The definite article is found in Greek. The apostasy. Distinguishing this from other times of apostasy, there's coming the apostasy. Paul would allude to such a time to come in 1 Timothy 4. Just listen to this in verse 1. 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. There's coming a time in the latter times, Paul says, when people will fall away. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What's that? That's apostasy, isn't it? And when is it coming? In the last times. I think we live in the latter times now. They began when the church began. But Paul in 2 Thessalonians envisions a day that essentially is the culmination of these last times. These last times will culminate into a time in which something recognizable will be called the apostasy. That must mean that it is a kind of apostasy that goes above and beyond anything we have ever seen in human history. It defines the day of the Lord. It isn't difficult to see how we are in a culture that builds that kind of thing, is it? We are in not just a time period and not just a region of the world where we see an encroaching apostasy. We actually live in a global world now where apostasy is seen across the world. What used to be regional, generational kinds of apostasy, you know, like, you think about this in the 1600s, it's one of the most incredible periods of of Christian, rich Christian tradition in the Puritans in England. I mean, I love reading the Puritans of the mid-1600s in England. That's some of the most rich material about the Christian life you could read, but you look at England today and it's virtually an apostate nation. You don't see it. We've seen that regionally. We've seen that at different times 
the apostasy will characterize the entire culture of the globe when it comes in the day of the Lord. I do think it is fascinating to watch what is happening among evangelicals in America. Not, not liberals, evangelicals. Who are now looking to even redefine basic things like salvation itself. The church itself. You're going to watch this grow and develop. And perhaps this is just a season of which there, there could be a period of revival that comes. We don't know how it's all going to shake. But what you see should help you at least to believe it is possible to see how an entire globe can be taken in by disbelief in God. A global culture ripe with apostates from Christianity will likely proceed it will be a major, significant event that is widespread and ushers in the day of the Lord. Jesus actually said this in his comments in Matthew 24 about the days to come that will usher in the return of the Lord. In verse 10 of Matthew 24, he said, At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And he even describes those days as a day that has not since occurred since the beginning of the world until now and ever will. So it's some climactic form of apostasy. So Paul in, in this chapter is not talking about a general apostasy, but the apostasy. An entire era marked by abandonment of Christianity. That will be the theme of the day. That will be the general tenor of the society. Perhaps a few will come to faith in Christ during that time period, but the whole of it, the general tenor will be rejection of Christianity. Now the Thessalonians should know that did not describe their day. They should know that. How should they know that? They'd only been Christians for a small amount of time. In fact, Christianity had never been heard of in the city of Thessalonica until Paul had arrived there maybe three months before. Actually, Christianity, when they received this letter, was actually growing. The church was thriving. More churches were being established. Christianity was spreading across the known world at that time. It was not a period marked by apostasy. They could easily see that. They might be experiencing persecution and pressure and opposition, but this was not the apostasy. In fact, many of the people in their church were holding firm in the midst of it, not abandoning it. So they couldn't possibly be in the day of the Lord. The apostasy had not come. I just want to say, as we see what happens in our culture, don't be unsettled by it. Don't be unsettled. Expect it. Now, if you knew that there's coming a day called the apostasy, would you expect that you would begin to see trends leading toward it? Yes. You say, am I just supposed to sit back and let it happen? Well, let me ask you, what will you do? You, you evangelize, you preach the gospel, you disciple each other and make disciples, you be faithful to the church, you trust the Lord, you, you stay faithful to the things of Christ as an individual citizen, you vote your conscience where you're allowed to do that, but you don't get all upset when the world starts trending toward what God says will eventually happen. You're like, okay, I see that. Does that mean you, you shrink from being a faithful Christian? No, you pour yourself into it. 
The Lord will work out the details of how it all comes out. You be faithful to Christ. Don't let yourself move toward the trend of apostasy. So don't be unsettled. Don't be alarmed. I don't think you could say that we're in the era of God's final wrath on earth either because we actually see even glimpses of it amidst all that's happening in our country. We actually see more people engaging in some kind of serious study of the Bible. We've at least seen that in this region. Every like-minded church that I know of who believes and is faithful to the gospel in this region right now is experiencing unprecedented growth. Interest, conversions. I wouldn't call this the era of the apostasy. Can we see outlines of how it could come? Of course. But remember, every era of human history has seen apostasy. But you'll know it, it's as if, it's, it's kind of a, a thing where you know it when you see it, right? There'll be no question, oh, that's the apostasy, when virtually the whole society just rejects all of Christianity. That's the first sign. There's a second piece of evidence that the day of the Lord has come. It's found in verses 3 through 5. It is the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man of lawlessness is revealed. There's a lot we're going to learn about the man of lawlessness. <clears throat> Paul is going to describe him in, in great detail here. And it's not just Paul, really, he's described in other portions of the scripture as well. But verses 3 through 12 is virtually a portrait of the coming man of lawlessness that exercises his global influence throughout the day of the Lord. It's not just at a certain portion of the day of the Lord. He emerges at the beginning of the day of the Lord. And these verses provide us with a look into his life. We're going to see a general description of him this morning. In verses 3 to 5, we'll see the present delay and why do we not see him currently, the present delay in verses 6 through 8, we'll look at next time we're together in this text. And then we'll look at his supernatural deception in verses 9 to 12. We'll look at that in the following weeks. But I want to focus this morning on the description of the man of lawlessness in verses 3 through 5. Let me point out just three general descriptions of this man. They're not hard to see. First, Notice this, he comes with the apostasy. He doesn't come after, he comes with the apostasy. In verse 3, when it says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, or literally that could read, it has not come. You'll notice those words, it will not come, are in italics, meaning they're not in the original Greek text. The editors are trying to add some language there to smooth out the English. Paul doesn't complete the sentence here. So he, he pulls it from, you pull it from the sentence before it. It has not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. There's a strong grammatical link between the apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. They're two different events that are closely related to each other. They're tied to each other. It's the apostasy first and revealing of the man of lawlessness, not, not the apostasy that comes first and then after the apostasy, the man of lawlessness. It's not what he says. 
Could be that the man of lawlessness helps to usher in the apostasy. It could be that the apostasy ushers in the man of lawlessness, but they're connected. The word first here describes the apostasy's relation to the day of the Lord. You first look for apostasy and revelation of the man of lawlessness. That's what you look for. They're connected. Connected events. Maybe they happen simultaneously. But when you see one, you will see the other. There's not going to be the apostasy for a number of years and then, then, then you'll see the man of lawlessness. No, they're connected together. You see one, you'll see the next. That's the way Paul describes it in the language here. He comes with the apostasy. Secondly, he is characterized by disobedience and destruction. He's characterized by disobedience and destruction. What does this mean? Well, he's the man of lawlessness and he is the son of destruction. Those are the characteristics of his life. He's characterized by disobedience. He's the man of lawlessness. He doesn't give himself to law. Well, what law? Some would say any law. No, this probably refers to the law of God. He's a man who regards the law of God as nothing to obey. Some versions will describe him as the man of sin, but the better manuscript evidence is for the word lawlessness. But either way, what is lawlessness? It's sin. Sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. It's breaking the law of God. He has no regard for the scriptures. This will characterize this man. He has no regard for the Bible itself, the law of God. He's marked by a refusal to be ruled by the God of Scripture. Now, I want to say at this point, that does not mean he is secular. As we'll see, he's actually in this text revealed to be quite religious, not secular. He's simply against what God reveals in the scripture. He rejects the authority of the Bible. He, he rejects the sufficiency of the scripture. In fact, as we'll see, he is quite religious because he sets himself up in the temple of the God. And he calls himself God. But he is disobedient. Everything that God says to do, he is against. Everything God says stop doing, he's for. Can you imagine a society like that? that would look to someone and, and be pleased with that. I, I could see that happening. Not only disobedience, he's also described by destruction. He's characterized by destruction. What does this mean? That he's the one doing the destroying? Not likely. It's likely a Hebrew idiom that means he is the son who will be destroyed. He is the one who will be given over to destruction. Yes, you could say that he'll produce some destruction, but from what we learn, he provides more unity in the world than he does destruction. But he will be destroyed in the end by the Lord. Look at verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians 2. Then that lawless one, that one who rejects the law of God, the man of lawlessness, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay. He will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. He's the man who will be destroyed by Christ. He's marked by lawlessness, disobedience, and destruction. He comes with the apostasy. A third description. He exalts himself as God. He exalts himself as God. 
Notice how he does this. First, he exalts himself as an adversary to anything and everything that is called God. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. I'm tempted to describe how this is a Granville Sharp-like construction, but I'm not going to do it this morning. But you should note that this is the one, this is the one who is opposing and exalting. He's always opposing, and in his opposing, he's exalting himself. In his exalting, he's doing it in a way that is opposing. The opposing and the exalting are two different characteristics achieving the same goal. He's opposing and exalting. He exalts himself above all other gods in the culture, all other objects connected to religious worship. He's above them all. He opposes them all. This is not someone posing to be a Christian. This is a person who is looking at himself as the epitome of all religious worship. Not just Christianity. Any other kind of worship. Any object of worship. Any kind of religion that doesn't end in his worship, he's against. He promotes a kind of worship that embraces perhaps every religion as long as those religions will acknowledge him as ultimate. I think this is a sign that he makes himself the center point of all religious expression. I think he may, in fact, this may be the sign that he is the epitome of pluralistic religion. He is as King Charles III has said of himself, not the defender of the faith, but the defender of faith. I did not just say there that King Charles III is the Antichrist. Don't go out and say that stuff. <laughs> I'm just saying you see that kind of thing, all right? I did have a friend who used to say that Prince Charles was the Antichrist, and I'm sure that my friend right now is just salivating all over the place right now about this, but... Maybe, I don't know. I didn't say it though, all right? Don't mark that down. But notice also in this text, he also exalts himself with an authority as God. He's not just opposed to all other religions. He marks himself and exalts himself in his opposition to such a degree that he is the, the authority as God. He takes his seat, it says. He opposes and exalted, and, and he opposes and he exalts himself against all kinds of religions so that, with the result that, he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He's obviously religious. Where's his headquarters? The temple of God. Now, we have to ask and answer some questions so that we understand exactly what this means. What does the temple of God refer to? It literally in the Greek is, has two articles. It's the temple of the God. So it's very definite, very recognizable. The temple of the God. Some tell us that this is a reference to the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus, the Roman general who eventually became Caesar. 
And they would go on to say everything in this passage is a reference to the Romans and even the Roman general Titus who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. I actually have another friend. I think he's in heaven now so he knows better. Uh, He wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. And we used to go back and forth in such, in friendly ways, friends, very friendly. He was a member of our church and I love him dearly. And uh, he wrote this commentary and, and he sat down with me. He says, I want to go through all this with you and prove to you why Titus is the man of lawlessness. And I said, well, I've just got one really lingering problem with that. And it's verse 8. Because the man of lawlessness is the one that Jesus comes back and slays. And Titus didn't die in the destruction of the temple. So that couldn't be the wrath of God there. Titus actually went on to become Caesar and was even more exalted. He has some answers for that, but they weren't very compelling. It didn't answer verse 8. So someone to say that all of this is about what happened in the past. It would have been future for Paul and the Thessalonians, but certainly past for us, and that's all he's talking about here. I think clearly verse 8 reminds us that this is the one who actually brings Jesus back. So that's future even to us. Some suggest that this phrase, the temple of God, is a metaphorical reference to the church because the Apostle Paul describes the church in places like 1 Corinthians 3. He describes the church as a temple of the living God. Our bodies are as Christians are even called the temple of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so some would say this is a reference to this man of lawlessness setting himself up in the church. And it's just a metaphor for the church in general. I'm not convinced of that either. First, that phrase... The temple of God is not the phrase that Paul generally uses when he describes the church as the temple. It's not the church or the temple of the God. If you look carefully at the way Paul uses that phrase in Greek, uh, he uses a different phrase when he describes the church. Also, if, if the temple of God is a metaphor for the church, then does that then make the man a metaphor also? for just general opposition. How would we know that one is a metaphor and the other isn't? If this is a legitimate man, it seems like if this is a man who has, is revealed in history and time and space and he sets himself up in the temple of God, the temple of the God, that seems to be likely a specific, literal, physical place, not a metaphor. And by the way, Paul doesn't refer to the church in metaphorical terms like that in this way. Uh, He refers to the church, when he describes a local church, if he were to set himself up in the church, it's not over the church in general, it would have to be in a particular church. And what church is that? Each church is called a temple of God, not the whole gathering of Christians together. No, each church is called a temple of God. So this doesn't seem to be a description of something metaphorical. This is an actual man and an actual temple that he takes his seat in or he religiously expresses himself from this center point. So what does it refer to? 
Well, the temple of God, the temple of the God, most likely refers to the temple in Jerusalem. That would be the most obvious reference for those who are reading this letter. That would be the most likely way they would understand this. There's just one problem with it. That temple that they would have recognized does not exist. It does not exist to this day. There's one portion of the ancient temple, the western wall they refer to, that exists today. But it was destroyed in 70 AD. It's never been rebuilt. And you think about it. The present hostilities in that region, could you imagine trying to rebuild a temple on the existing Temple Mount today with all of the existing hostilities that there are in that region? It would take something absolutely spectacular for that kind of thing to happen. Now that doesn't mean that such a temple won't be built. It doesn't require that the temple of the God be rebuilt on that specific location. We're not told anything about that. We're just told about a man who is coming and this man will bring Jesus back to the earth. He will exalt himself in the temple that is dedicated to God and he will exalt himself above that God and himself as the true God. I think the fact that there is no temple there today and it would take so much to get one, uh, the commentators that I was reading through this week and I just tried to narrow down on every reason they believed why this couldn't be a literal temple in the future and all their arguments were essentially there isn't one and it would be too hard to build one. I think we need more than that. This seems to assume something he will assume his seat in, his ruling power will exist from this center point. And this is a man who's coming in the future, not one who has been in the past. But I want you to think of this. This is not going to be a temple that's devoted to the one true God. Perhaps it was at one point. But he will consume it as a temple to himself, as the only true God. It's not going to be a temple to Jewish worship. Not when he takes it over. It's a temple to his worship. It's not a temple that the Muslims would say, sure, you can have that temple that's devoted to our worship. No, he won't put up with Muslim and Islam worship either. Or Buddhist or Hindu. It's going to be the man of lawlessness temple. He will be the religion. It says he takes his seat. He begins to rule, displaying himself as being God, meaning all the religions of the world will likely be subsumed in him. The reality is that this very image was actually already predicted in the Old Testament. Did you know that? Paul is not making this up. This is not some new thing that Paul got. This was already described in the Old Testament. Let me show you a reference and we'll just look at one. Turn back to Daniel for a moment. And this, is, this could get sticky, I know. <clears throat> but we'll, we'll try to stay slick and not be sticky, all right? Look at Daniel chapter 9 for a moment. I I know this is a weedy little section here, but let me see if I can walk you through it carefully. It is likely what Paul is referring to in 2 Thessalonians. 
When Daniel has been reading the prophet Jeremiah and he realizes that the captivity that his people have been in has reached about the 70-year point, he, he begins to pray, acknowledging the sin of Israel and God is about to do something. He recognizes that. And then he has a vision. What is that vision? Notice verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be a war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Is that clear? Not at all. You see, what, what does this mean? Well, let me just walk you through it quickly. Again, we can argue about it later, but let me just walk you through it quickly. <clears throat> Verse 24 describes 70 weeks. Literally, it's the term 70 sevens. 70 sevens. Nothing is specifically said about how long these sevens are. Many believe that they are referring to a period of a year. Each week or seven is one year. The Hebrews were very familiar with this kind of concept of sevens of years. The idea of a Sabbath and the sabbatical year. Every seventh year was a Sabbath rest for the land. They were familiar with this terminology. Now in scripture, only two kinds of sevens exist. It's either sevens of days or sevens of years. And years seems to fit this context better than days. Verse 25 talks about 70 sevens. And they're broken into three sections. There's seven sevens, which would be 49 years. It's described in verse 25. There's seven weeks or seven sevens, 49 years. This likely refers to the command to rebuild Jerusalem given to Nehemiah and it terminates with the completion of the work that was done under Ezra. 62 sevens are mentioned next in verse 25 which would refer if there's seven of sevens and those sevens refer to years, that would be 434 years. So from the end of the first sevens, the first 49 years, the completion of the city until Christ presents himself in Jerusalem as Messiah in the triumphal entry, that's actually 434 years. It fits this chronology. Now after the 69 weeks, the first seven plus the 62, after those 69 sevens, there's a break. Verse 26, 
Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. Who will destroy the city? The people, not the prince, the people of the prince. They cut off Messiah. This likely refers to the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when they destroyed the temple and cut off the Messiah. Verse 27, notice this. And then he will make a firm covenant with the many. Not the people of the prince, but the prince himself. This seems to describe something different than what the people were doing. It's distinct from them. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, or if we understand that seven to be years, for seven years. A seven, a single seven-year period. And in the middle of that week, say three and a half years in, he will put a stop to sacrifice, meaning there is some temple existing that he stops. And grain offering. And then he describes this, the wing of abomination will come, one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, meaning he is the one who is brought to complete destruction. That sounds like the language Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's the man that is given to destruction. He's the man who makes a covenant likely with the Jewish people at the beginning of the seven-year period, turns on that three and a half years in, which, by the way, this language of three and a half years will be used over and over in this book and even referred to in the book of Revelation as well. It seems that Paul is referring to this particular prophecy, saying this prince who is to come is the one whom will be destroyed at the end. Further note, you could look at Daniel 11, verses 31 through 37. We won't take the time now, but you could look at that, and it will sound very similar to this, except Daniel 11 likely is an historical note regarding Antiochus Epiphanes, who did exactly what this man of sin did in between the Old and New Testaments. He invaded the temple, set up an idol in the Holy of Holies, proclaimed himself as God, and that was a historical point of, of note to the Jews to say, yes, it can happen because we've seen something just like that. It's very common in biblical prophecy to give a near fulfillment of something that will be finished far into the future. And Daniel 11 points to that very thing. Further, Jesus refers back to Daniel 9 in chapter 24 of Matthew and verse 15 and says this, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus says, understand there's coming in the midst of this time that actually brings the Lord back a man who brings about the abomination of desolation which is the reference to Daniel 9. Jesus refers to this man. Jesus refers to this issue. So, this man of lawlessness that Paul describes is the prince described in Daniel 9. The one who causes the abomination of desolation. And that abomination of desolation is the man of lawlessness taking his seat in the temple, defiling it, devoting himself to be God. 
Even more interesting, and you can look this up through the week, go back and read Revelation 13, especially the first eight verses, and you're going to find a beast described that sounds very much like this man in Daniel 9, very much like the man in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in chapter 19 of Revelation, when the Lord returns, it says the Lord destroys this beast. He is the man who's given to destruction. I think this is the ultimate expression, this man is, of what the Apostle John referred to in 1 John 2.18. He said, children, it is the last hour. How do you know it's the last hour? Just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. There are many who are like the man to come. Why would that be? So that you're not like the three and four-year-olds I met at the beginning of the service who are like, what? That can't happen. That's far-fetched. No, there are many. Again, they're littered through history. And they look like this man. They sound like this man. And there are many of them that come before that ultimate one. John calls him the Antichrist. John, the apostle in 1 John, is the only one who refers to him as Antichrist. He's always referred to either as the beast in Revelation or he's referred to as the man of lawlessness or the man of destruction. That's the description of him. There's more to say of him. But notice Paul's comment back in 2 Thessalonians just for a moment. Verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? You know what this means? It means you should feel better right now because you're saying this seems hard. Well, it's hard enough that Paul had to say it over and over and over and over to them. And it was something they went over. And likely he was going through all of the the Bible trying to put the biblical picture together as a whole. And we've been talking about these things over and over so you should know this. This is what Daniel predicted. This is actually what you'll find at the end of Daniel's book. And you'll find it referred to in places like Ezekiel you'll find these days described. Zechariah is a key book that describes these events as well. This is not the first. This is something we've taught many, many times. Jesus refers to this in the Gospels. Paul isn't making this up. This is biblical truth. So what's the point? What are you worried about? Have you seen the apostasy that comes and brings in the man of lawlessness? Well, no, I haven't seen that. Then settle down. Well, do I really have to know this stuff? Do I really have to? Well, the people who don't know this are the people who are given over to being unsettled. That's his point. They'll be unsettled. They'll think that what's going on in their world is is some specific event predicted in the Bible and listen, you can listen to Christian TV and you'll listen to these guys and think, well, that sounds like that could be true and I see that in the newspaper and I, I heard this and that seems like it could be that and you'll get really worked up. You'll hear things on, on the nightly news that you think, oh, this is, this is the apocalypse. 
You know what you need to remind yourself? No, wait a minute. Is this the apostasy? Do we see the man? Then we're not in the day of the Lord. That day has not begun. That day hasn't begun. And you know what that says? If the day hasn't begun, then the gathering hasn't happened either. And so we're still waiting for that to come. Be settled. Live stable. And reorient your mind. Make disciples. Encourage each other. Pray with one another. Share the gospel. Give yourself to the work of Christ and be the church. And let God worry about how he runs the world. Right? We better pray. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you for our time together in your word. And we pray that you would help us as we think through these, these issues. Help us to be clear and help us to be forthright of how we see the coming of the Lord and not to upset the faith of any, but to encourage the faith that it would uh, remain and be firm and fervent and pure. Lord, help us to be faithful to what you've revealed in the scripture and to expect and anticipate what you've said and not doubt it and to keep bringing ourselves back over and over again to what you've already revealed and not to waver. I pray that you would help us to have wisdom in coming alongside our brothers and sisters who are experiencing an unsettled life because they're worried about what's going on around them. I pray for those who don't believe in Christ, that they would see these events and know that what you have promised is coming, but now is the time of salvation, not the time of judgment. So bring them to faith in Christ. We trust you with this and pray for your help as we walk through it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.